So I'm going to read that poem again from Harada Roshi because I think it really speaks beautifully and succinctly to this theme. I vow to choose what is. So, and of course, when he's saying, I vow to choose what is, he's um, mm, practicing renunciation in uh, letting go of preferences or what's sho- to what's showing up. If there is cost, I choose to pay. Think of that next time you go into a store. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. So, so, so think about these situations as you, as you listen to this poem. If there is need, I choose to give. Of course, there could be many other responses to uh, how we respond to need. If there is pain, I choose to feel. How many times do we choose not to feel? Right? We renounce or we reject the pain. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. So there's this lovely quality of surrender into the truth of the moment. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. Whom my shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. When this takes me, I choose, where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. So of course we have a choice in all of those situations, whether there's need or pain or sorrow or burning or starving or happiness. And one way to look at renunciation is to look at all the ways that we obstruct capacity to simply be with what is without suffering around it. So it's important in think when thinking about this theme to th- to understand it in the context of wisdom. Wisdom from a, a Buddhist perspective is experiential. It's, it's, it arises through learned experience. It's not intellectual. It's not book-learnt ideas about how good it is to practice renunciation. No, it's about seeing, it's the wisdom of learning to see what causes suffering, what causes happiness, what causes peace, what interferes with our natural sense of well-being, what interferes with our sense of connection. to look at that, to understand that, and to see what can be understood and released. So normally we think of renunciation, well, I'll I'll get there in a minute, what we think about that, um, especially in California. (laughs) So I wanted to share this story. Uh, It's an old story from when I first started teaching. about a student I worked with, it was on a correspondence course uh, in England, and she actually she was in Wales, um, which is next to England, and um, it's the Queen's Jubilee today, by the way. <laughs> 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 
Yes, I was getting distracted while I was thinking about this talk by looking at photos of Buckingham Palace and Union Jacks and all that bizarre patriotic nationalism that I'm very happy to be 5,000 miles away from. <laughs> but I can appreciate the, the, this, 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 some, there's some positive qualities in that. Uh, it has a mixed bag for me and for many people. Um, God bless the Queen. Sixty years. <laughs> she could give some talks on perseverance and endurance. So anyhow, back to my story. Uh, so I was uh, working with this woman, and she had been on a uh, she'd been t- attended a, ka- a Kala Chakra s- uh, ceremony with the Dalai Lama, which is a big ritual. Uh, a lot of which is around impermanence, not the only thing, but about understanding transience. And she was very moved by this ritual, as many people are, and she went up at the end of the ceremony and grabbed some of the roses and flowers that were on the altar and took them back to her own altar as her memory. So so the, the flowers, the roses are on her altar, and of course, over time, they wilt and dry and wither and but she felt very attached to the, the the memory so she kept them on there and and one day the cleaner came in and thought what's all this messy dusty old bunch of flowers rotting on this table so she vacuumed them up and uh and then this woman came back and was very distraught that her you know this this precious memento had, had been annihilated and um so when her husband came home she, he got her, him him to uh, go through the um, uh, vacuum bag <laughs> and try and pick out <laughs> the pieces of rose petals so she could sort of reassemble them and put them on the altar. And, and halfway through, when all the living room was full of dust and junk and stuff, she realized, wait a minute, this, this whole ritual was about impermanence and letting go <laughs> and you know, surrendering to change. And here I am holding on to dear life to these roses. So... Uh, and that's so often true with our experience. You know, we know a lot of stuff. We, I mean, everything that we hear, this we mostly know it, or we intuit it, and we're just being reminded because we forget, or because it hasn't gone from here, from the head to the heart center, and to the gut center, the body center. So that's why we practice. That's why we look. That's why we study. That's why we keep learning, and applying the the these perennial wisdom teachings. So one of the things that's required is to um, to really uh, understand is to first clear our our preconceptions, our fixed ideas, our sense of knowing. Right? We have to we have to be open and curious, and not think that we know everything, like our mind likes to think it does. So I like to read this 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 piece from Audie Lang in that vein. Um, it's called, There is Something I Don't Know. There is something I don't know that I am supposed to know. I don't know what it is I don't know, and yet I'm supposed to know, and I feel I look stupid if I seem to both not know it and not know what it is I don't know. <laughs> Therefore, I pretend to know it. This is nerve-wracking since I don't know what I must pretend to know. Therefore, I pretend to know everything. Sound familiar? <laughs> Show up at work, and your boss says, you know what's going on? Yeah, I know what's going on. Yeah, I'm a clue what's going on. 
I feel you know what I'm supposed to know, but you can't tell me what it is because you don't know that I don't know what it is. You may know what I don't know, but not that I don't know it, and I can't tell you, so you will have to tell me everything. (laughs) So, such is um, the mind that's caught in knowing, thinking it needs to know. It's a painful mind state. It's very insecure, right? And it's much easier to say, well, I just don't know which is often more truthful. People often often ask ask me frequently questions about their lives and their practice and enlightenment, and I say, I have no idea. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) What's your experience? So, um, yeah, so back to renunciation and the popularity of that theme in in, uh, Northern California. So, w- w- just w- what comes up when you think about renunciation? Just a word or two. What? 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 what, what the first response. Well, I don't know. Huh? I don't know. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Letting go. <laughs> Letting go. Someone said religion. Uh huh. Poverty. Giving up. Giving up. Giving up. Boredom. Boredom. Gluten free. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great renunciation. <laughs> yes. Unless you're sick with celiac and then it's a holiday. That's wisdom. Anything else? Denial. Denial. Come on, let's hear. What do you really think about renunciation? Come on. Deprivation. Deprivation. Okay. Grasping. Grasping. Offering. Putting it down. Putting it down. Giving it up. Giving it up. Courage. Rigid. Rigid. Mental attachments. Hmm? Mental attachments. Surrender. Okay, this is a very enlightened crowd. I'm <coughs> expecting like, oh, groan, no. So this is a story from a uh, wonderful Indian yogi, uh, Anandamaya Ma. So four businessmen uh, come up to her and they ask her, why are you renouncing the world? Given you, you've given up so much and you could have so much with her beauty and her wisdom. And she laughs and she says, It is you who are giving up the world for a little money and possessions. By my renunciation, I have gained everything. It is you who have given up the world for a little money and possessions, while I, by my renunciation, have gained everything. So that's a very profound retake on what renunciation is. Because it's it's true, we, we fixate and focus on certain things, and then we give up so much. Like we get so fixated and goal oriented and attached to the goal that we miss life along the way. We miss smelling the roses. We miss the beauty of the morning. We miss so many things. We miss the, the look on our child's face. You know, so many things. So the Buddha was you know, um, known as, a, as the great renunciate. Um, and um, at the same time, uh, he was also, from a certain perspective, uh, s- uh, a great pleasure seeker or the ultimate hedonist in a certain way in that he was renouncing a lifestyle and choices for something that would provide greater happiness and peace. Right? So he gave up a lot of worldly <coughs> pleasures in terms of his you know, palaces and his wealth and status and power because um, he saw that that wasn't actually didn't actually last. It didn't. It didn't really do it. 
And he kept seeing signs around of him, people, you know, getting old, getting sick, dying. And he wanted something more lasting. So he, 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 let, that, he let it go, not out of rejection, but out of, oh, there's something, there's a possibility that we all feel, we all taste at times, possibility of our own capacity or freedom. Yeah? And we give up certain things, like you gave up whatever you wanted to do on Monday night to come and sit and be with yourself. <coughs> yeah? Because there's something deeper calling, there's some deeper knowing that something's possible. Yeah? Even though it takes work. You know, getting up every morning and meditating can be feel like work, right? But there's some there's some there's some uh, happiness uh, around that certain there's a certain kind of renunciation because of the potential that it brings and the wisdom or the clarity it offers. So a metaphor that I like for the spiritual path is um, understanding that that awakening is a certain unburdening and lightening of the load. And we start the path with a very heavy backpack full of stuff, full of our views and our ideas and our judgments and our preferences and our painful tendencies and patterns and habits and, and all of that, right? And, and it gets heavier as we get older and accumulate more stuff and rigidity and and practice and realization is about un- un- unburdening, lightening that load, taking out the views and the ideas and the judgments. And, and so it frees up our energy, it frees up our mind, it frees it up so we can respond and be more present and be more awake and deal with what's in front of us. So what I like about this analogy is it's not, we don't, uh, unload the backpack and then mm, check into a spa for the rest of our lives. No, we, we, we still carry along the path and we still meet the same obstacles as we were meeting before. Challenges, health issues, money un- uncertainty, work challenges, right? None of that stuff goes away, but because we've lightened our load, then we have more capacity, we have more resources we're less tied up in dragging this weight behind us. Does that make sense? So there's a, th- one of the reasons I, I, I wanted to give this talk is there's a lot of conversation in, in New Age circles about, and spiritual circles, about letting go, which is another way of talking about renunciation. And I think it's a problematic term because there's some idea that, well, you should just let go. You know, you, I mean, I, this has happened to me many times where I've been sharing something to somebody about, oh, I'm having, uh, I don't know, a lot of, a lot of uh, anxiety about some situation, or, and, they, and the person says, well, you should just let go. I'm like, great, thanks. <laughs> That's really helpful. <laughs> You know, or so I'm dealing with with some grief and sorrow about a certain loss, and oh, you should just let go. Really? Wow, great. Tell me where, where's the instruction manual for that? You know, I missed that one. So, um, and I, I came across uh, this article um, 
online, and it says, 15 things you should give up to be happy. <laughs> and it's sort of in this spirit of, well, just let go. So 15 things you should give up now, okay? <laughs> give up on your need to, and, then, and they're all wonderful, valid things, but it's how we approach those things that is, that is, is the key to whether we actually create more suffering by thinking we should or can give, up, give them up immediately. Give up your need to be right, give up your need for control, give up on blame, self-talk, limiting beliefs, complaining, criticism, you need to impress others, you're resistant to change, that's a good one. Just give up your resistance <laughs> to change, just <laughs> let it go. Give up labels, here's another one. Give up your fears, just stop being afraid, just, just relax. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> give up your excuses, oh, here's a really great one. Give up the past, just it's over. What's your problem? <laughs> Give up attachment. Really easy. Anybody attached in relationships? Any love or triangles? What a moment is. Give up attachment. Great. Give up living your life to other people's expectations. So again, they're wonderful things. And I'm going to talk about some of these as, as, as things to practice with, but um, some of these are lifelong projects. You know, giving up attachment, giving up fears. You know, that's that's like a major piece of work. <laughs> you know, just just as you've you've worked through one fear, another one pops up. You know, a deeper layer. You know. So, or you think you've worked with your critic, and then this whole other really deep subterranean layer of energetic quality of self-judgment shows. Are like, wow, I can't even. There's not even a thought to give up, but I feel it in my body. Wow, that's a, that's. A, I can't just let that one go. So I let go of my body. So if we could let go, we would, right? If you let go, if you let, if you can let go, we normally do, right? So So from a Dharma perspective, we're also looking at not just letting go, but to what end, right? So is the letting go that we're doing leading to peace? Or is it leading to something else? So is our letting go depriving or punishing? Which it can be. Is it being done with aversion and rejection and hatred and pushing away, which is just creating more aversion and rejection? It's not actually creating letting go. No, it's creating division and separation. So, I remember when I uh, first started practicing meditation in a Buddhist class in the East End of London. And um, I was uh, a pretty wild young soul. I was 19, I was a punk rocker and was white mohawk and big earrings and I made my own clothes and I was an anarchist and I squatted houses and it just it was a really fun, creative, playful, wild time. And punk was like booming, so it was just a great time to be in London and be a student and do nothing except party. And, and then I got into Buddhism and I, um, I renounced that whole side of myself, thinking that was like 
not very Buddhist and not very spiritual and not very whatever Zen and so so rejected it shaved my head off gave my clothes away went into a retreat center and and the whole artistic side of myself just got kind of sat on and it was extremely unhealthy and I had some idea of what a good Buddhist looked like and there was kind of pious and sort of Catholic and sort of good and you know and repressed <laughs> and as my sister said, you went from being a punk to a boring Buddhist. Like, what was up with that? Like, that was, that was a bad move. I mean, we, we were worried for 10 years. You know, I'd show up with these spikes, and they were more comfortable with that than they, when I shaved, showed up with my shaved head. So it was just one example of, and we all have our own stories, of a way that we reject things by thinking that we're renouncing in a way that we think is good, or some, according to some idea or ideology that's actually unwise, that's unhealthy, that's, that's rejecting, that's, that's actually, it's actually um, uh, painful or oppressive or violent at times. So to, 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 be lo- to, to be mindful of the intention in which you practice the letting go, you know, to see whether it comes out of aversion or wisdom, does it serve well-being or some ideology? Sometimes uh, life demands that we renounce, that we let go of our position, our view, our attachment, our relationship, our circumstances, right? Many, many times. It's part of just the life cycle and and dealing and growing. So, um, you know, the the recent financial crisis was a good example where people lost... Forced, it was a forced letting go of a lot of wealth or, or security or housing or, or job security or retirement security. Yeah? Very, very harsh. Right? And you know, pra- our practice is training us for those kind of events. Right? And, we're in a, and then we do the best we can in those circumstances. Or we lose somebody dear to us. Or so, or so in our relationship, falls apart for whatever reason. I used to travel to India a lot to practice and to teach, and um, India is, is a wonderful place to practice uh, renunciation, because if you don't, you're just miserable, because it does not <laughs> conform in any shape or form to your adi- I- I desires and attachments and needs, and it's just wonderful training for the mind. You know, so uh, my favorite story about, well, I've got many stories, but one of the stories that I uh, remember in relation to this theme is I was in Bodhgaya Station. It was about quarter to five in the morning. The train always used to come really early from Bodhgaya back to Varanasi. And the the station master came on and said, the the Shatabdi Express is coming into the station and uh, it's exactly on time. Uh, from yesterday, as in it was yesterday's train that was 24 hours late. <laughs> um, so that often happens in India. Byron Katie has this wonderful story of um, uh, being burgled when she was living in, in, uh, in South Cal, in, uh, I forget the place where she lives, and um, her husband was a collector of rifles, um, 
and a lot of precious things were stolen and he was furious uh, for, for a long, long time. And she, in her uh, crazy wisdom way, said, well, it was never ours anyway. It was never ours anyway. So it didn't, it didn't even register as any uh, distress for her because there was a sense of, well, we don't own anything anyway. We just borrow it all. It's all borrowed, including this body. Or the poet Ryokan, who after was a, was a very simple hermit monk who lived up in the mountains in Japan, um, had very few possessions, and uh, came home one day, and had, a thief had stolen his rice pod and his whatever was left, a blanket, I don't know, can't imagine much. And he wrote a poem, a haiku, and it goes like this, Left behind by the thief, the full moon in the window. That's a mind that's free. <laughs> that's a mind that can let go and, and be at peace. Yeah. So think about that the next time you lose something. <laughs> your keys, <laughs> your wallet, your car, something, your stock portfolio. Look out the window, write a poem. So some things in our lives require an ongoing practice of renunciation. Any guess what they might be for you? What requires ongoing renunciation? Coffee. Caffeine. Caffeine. Okay. Uh-huh. Cookies. Uh, aging. That's it's more in the ballpark. Aging. Ongoing renunciation. Something we can't get away from. Beliefs, mm -hmm. speed, the the drug kind or just the the this pace of life, the pace of life. Okay. Self importance. Self importance. Okay. The end of the day. Judgment. Thoughts. So what I was thinking of in this context is the world of relationship. If there's one place that we have to practice, probably the most, aside from relationship to our body and our mind, is to in relationship. Right? We're always having to meet what's here, and 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 you know, it's one thing meeting ourselves, another thing meeting another human being who has their own life and thoughts and feelings and reactions and preferences and judgments going on. So it's a constant dance of 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 meeting and. Honoring, yielding, letting go, renouncing, assert, you know, it's, it's just a dance, whether it's a, a work relationship, a parent-child relationship, a love relationship, familial relationship, right? But there's always a dance going on. So I think about this when I, when I hear my friends who are looking after their aging relatives, parents or otherwise, who've got Alzheimer's, it's the most striking um, and, the, and the daily renunciation that has to go on about their own needs and desires for that relationship to be different than it is. Or parents who are dealing with their children who are suffering, you know, or who left home and uh, are really challenged in life, who are dealing with drug addiction or substance abuse, or, um, and just the daily the letting go that, that life forces us to have. I mean, life forces us to, to let go a lot. And that's why there's so much emphasis on this teaching, because if we don't let go, 
when we hold on and we demand and we control and we fix and we get attached, what happens? It's suffering, right? It's painful, right? And of course, it's what we do. It's, 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 it's often an instinctual response. And so, so mindfulness and practice is, is getting us to look at that and to see, oh, what are the ways that I'm holding on, grabbing, resisting, fixing around me, around my relationships, around my life that doesn't work, that really does, it's just an add-on that's not, that's not helpful. I remember talking to my aunt once who, uh, her two beautiful blue-eyed blonde daughters were really into um, uh, sp- uh, what we call, I know what it's called here, ra- speedway. So motorbike track racing. You know, and they were like nine years old, you know, these sweet young things going around this track. It was really fast motorbikes. And I was like, wow, that's a practice of renunciation right there. Or something. So I want to talk about some of the things that we um, can uh, just let go of right now. Uh, no, just to uh, <laughs> practice <laughs> looking at. Um, and to, to, to at least re- to begin the reflection around around renouncing. So, so starting the easiest or the simplest, maybe not the easiest, the simplest is to um, is to look at our relationship to our mind and our thoughts. So our thoughts are the most ephemeral and the lightest things. Um, they also can be very uh, enduring and 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 heavy and painful, but they're they're the place where we can actually let go. You know, we're caught in a busy trance of thinking, of judging, or rehashing some argument with somebody at work. And then we, can, we, we wake up to that and go, oh, I can just let this go. And we can drop it. And it works. Most of the time we just go, oh, let it go. And we can just allow it to release. Uh, and this is really good practice. It's really good training to practice in every moment of our life to notice what's happening in the mind, to see whether it's useful, and, and, to, and to allow it to release by itself. Often in just the noticing it, it sort of self-liberates. So particularly with our negative thinking, or our thinking that's, that's not constructive, the endless comparing mind, the judging mind, the fixing mind, yeah. So just certain patterns of thought that just that, uh, that, that quite simply don't serve, but we get caught in them as in, gro- in grooves. Yeah. So think about um, a pattern of thinking for you that that would be behoove you to no- to bring more into relief, to notice more, and then noticing will allow you to re- to disengage from it. Maybe it's your catastrophizing mind, right? Thinking about the worst case scenario. Anybody do that? Yeah, right? And does that really help us apart from make us feel anxious and afraid? No, not really. No, there's a place for anticipating and planning and all of that, but not just rehashing a very scary scenario. So in our judgmental thoughts, particularly the, 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 the negative self-talk, which is very pervasive, and I talk about this a lot because I see it a lot and I, I work with it a lot with students. I was just teaching a loving-kindness retreat this weekend and I would say the number one hindrance for people was the negative, judgmental self-talk. And uh, how intrusive and undermining and belittling and painful. 
And uh, again, it's one of those things, um, it doesn't work just to say, well, just let go. Because <laughs> you would if you could. Well, you could maybe in the moment. And you maybe can successively moment after moment. But also you want to understand the underlying forces or beliefs or views. So, um, and this is a cartoon from Peanuts. So um, Lucy uh, is saying, I hate everything. I hate the whole world. Charlie says, I thought you had inner peace. <laughs> I do. But I still have outer obnoxiousness. <laughs> so, so to look a little deeper behind the thoughts to the views... Right, the views. A lo- most of our judgments are really views about ourselves. What the Buddha called sakya ditti, self-view, the stories that we create about ourselves that that reinforce our identity, that we get attached to, and 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 experience a lot of pain, a lot of duress. So here's some good good um, examples um, that that are useful to um, let go. <laughs> I should be some other way than I am. I should be different than I am. It's a common view. It's one of those views that doesn't go anywhere. I should be further along the spiritual path than I am. I should be in a different place other than where I am. It's a complete nonsensical statement because you couldn't be anywhere other than you are. But that view makes us feel terrible about where we are in the present and thinks we should be somewhere else. And it's completely impossible because we are where we are. So notice that, particularly notice the shooting, the shooting thoughts, the shooting views, or the view, I'm in control of my life. That's a good one to look at. I'm in control of my life. That's when God starts laughing, you know. Or the view that I'm separate or I'm alone, or I'm independent. These are very strong, pervasive, contemporary views. I'm separate, I'm alone, I'm, in, in, I'm an individual, and I'm in, 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 uh, independent from everything. I, I control my own destiny. It's another popular New Age uh, term. Well, we have some, some, some you know, influence on it, but there are many other factors aside from our individual will and mind at play. And then there's views about religion. My religion, my path, my practice is the best, is the only way, is the, is the quickest way. And this, 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 these views create schisms in Buddhism, they create schisms within a tradition, they create schisms in the world, they create tremendous suffering in the world. Look at, the, look at all the religious wars we've had over the last hundred years because of the view, my God is the only God, my religion is the right religion, my holy book is more sacred than your holy book. It's a bunch of views that cause, when, it, when, when attached to, when there's not any spirit of spaciousness that comes from renunciation, there's entrenchment, there's, there's, uh, there's solidification, and there's uh, antagonism.
I had a lot of views when I came to America, because <laughs> I'm from Europe, because <laughs> I'm from England. And, um, and they've softened over the years, um, but they just created division, they created separation. This is from Osho. There are people who attach to wealth and there are people who attach to poverty. It is the same attachment. It is the same attachment. So what, 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 what is a view for yourself that you hold on really tightly to that doesn't necessarily serve your well-being? But maybe a self-view. Like, I don't know, I'm never going to get anywhere on the path. You know, the, the self-doubting views. I can't do this. It's too hard. I'm never going to be free. I'm never going to be awake. So what's wonderful about mindfulness practice and what's liberating about mindfulness practice is it provides a clarity and a spaciousness around all the places that we aren't able to renounce, that we, aren't, that we, that we, we get attached to. So I think about this in relationship to fear. Right? Fear is a very universal experience. And what's the, what's the impact of fear? Fear freezes and inhibits action. It inhibits us from taking steps. With mindfulness, we can track being afraid, we can track, we can feel the fear and still act, and, and see the view and still act, and not caught by the fear, even though it's still running. That is very liberating. The fear doesn't have to go in order to be able to act. Right? Or whether it's, it could be for you anxiety, or it could be jealousy, or it could be whatever it is. Mindfulness creates this wonderful capacity to, to hold it and, then, and also to act. So I work with this sometimes when I teach. It doesn't happen so often anymore, but it used to. It's ideas, my views about myself as a teacher, or then sometimes when I'm teaching somewhere new or challenging, or I, I know there's antagonism in the room, when I do some gigs that are slightly uh, different than outside of these settings, um, like if I go into a prison or certain corporate environments where people are like, yeah, what's all this uh, mindfulness crap? Okay, I'm going to see what this is. Okay. So um, <laughs> I can notice a little anxiety comes up, and sometimes, not always. And... Um, or, or when I have to challenge somebody, I have to confront somebody about some stuff, and a lot of fear comes up about, about being judged or uh, someone getting angry. And at this point, I enjoy working with the fear and, and acting anyway. Enjoying work, feeling the fear and, and saying what I need to say, doing what I need to do. It's a very empowering thing. So that, in a way, is a kind of quality of renunciation of not being so identified with that particular emotion. It's not rejecting it, it's not ignoring it, it's not bypassing it, it's feeling it and saying, oh, and this, and there's more to life than this particular constellation.
so I have this list that actually looks very similar to that list about letting go, um, which is interesting. Uh, so renunciation around our, around other mental habits. Um, and again, just to bring mindfulness to these things, noticing, I, I'm from England, so we have the reputation of being whinging palms that we complain about everything, which is true, uh, or not true, but it can be true. Um, noticing the complaining mind, always wanting things to be, thinking they should be different than they are. The if only mind. If only it's Spirit Rock, they serve coffee, I would stay awake during the meditation. If only the cookies were smaller, I wouldn't feel so sick after my third one. Um, if only I started meditating 20 years ago, I'd be really in great shape by now. Noticing the blaming mind, noticing the controlling mind, noticing the pain of racism or homophobia, these stories in our mind, these judgments about certain groups of people. So another, so it's interesting, I'm, I'm th- keep thinking about this fifth, list of 15 things to give up and I, I keep talking about them. Um, so uh, another thing that's really interesting to look at is our relationship to time. So um, including the past, to look at your, your, your relationship to the past and whether there's a holding on or a letting go. So I think Jack defines forgiveness as uh, letting go of all hope for a better past. <laughs> right? We, we try to rehash and we make the past and the di- arguments and the conversations and it is what it, it's done. It's gone. It's history. Can we let it go? Which means we have to first feel why we're not able to let go. Right? Usually because there's strong emotions, there's strong feelings of hurt, betrayal, anger, frustration, loss, fear. We have to meet that. Oh, look at that. I'm really, really s- sad and hurt that that happened. And my mind keeps doing this scenario of trying to make it better. Oh, but I just have to feel the pain. Once we feel the pain, this it can allow some release. So this is from the poet, uh, Sufi teacher Hafez, about the past What do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there and do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. To stop being so religious to to the shrine of the past. To practice a little uh, renunciation around the future, around the imagined future. The future does not exist except a thought in our imagination. Unless you're into quantum physics and time, and maybe it does exist, you know, in parallel universes and all that. I, aside from that, um, which I don't understand, um, to think about how much time and energy we invest in a future that never happens. The, the, the future that we have in here never happens. It, the, the, the so-called future arrives, as it were, tomorrow will arrive in the present moment in awareness, but not how we think about it. So you know, I'm probably pointing to things that, that, that um, 
we can look at with, with insight and go, oh yeah, I can give this up. I can stop wasting so much time in that realm and actually be here in the present where life is happening. So a woman told me a story on retreat uh, not so long ago where she um, had uh, and her husband had worked, uh, you know, put in a good working life and uh, they she retired first and then he retired and they planned a, you know, wonderful retirement life and they'd saved and done all the things that we do to, to retire and take care of that. And then the second week after he retired, he died. And all that planning and all that energy and life force, you know, vanished. Very painful, very painful. So another thing that we can look at in terms of uh, releasing our uh, <coughs> misunderstanding around is around permanence, <coughs> around mortality, around our immortality, should I say. Yeah, this idea that we're going to be around for ever or, or a long time. You know, we, don't, we, know, we don't know how long we're going to be around. We, we, we hope to get a good innings. Um, but we have no idea. And when we, when we, when we let go of that, that idea that we're going to live for a long time, what happens? We start living life with a little more zest, a little more vitality, a little more immediacy, a little more preciousness, a little more feeling the vulnerability and the beauty and the joy because we don't know if it's going to be the last summer that we experience, you know, the last spring that we experience, or the last full moon that we experience. So this is a poem from um, beloved poet Ellen Bass. It's called Waking Grievers. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch the palm or press your fingertips into the crease of a lifeline. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal when, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They just had lunch and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless and pinned against time? What would people look like? What would we look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? a beautiful line, pinned against time. We are all pinned against time and we don't know what hand we will be dealt with that. So, of course, in, in Buddhist teachings, the, the Buddha talked about practicing renunciation in some very key areas and, I, and I've talked about some of them around views. Another key area is around the force of desire, and this is more co the common association with this teaching of renunciation, that it means we have to give up all the fun, juicy, yummy stuff. 
And that's not actually what it means. It means we need to practice renouncing the suffering and the attachment around things. So there's a a line, again, this is from um, Osho, who said, uh, dropping the idea of ownership is renunciation. Renunciation is not dropping the possessions, but the possessiveness. Not dropping the possessions. So... um, there's a, uh, uh, a way of understanding this, if I can unravel this piece of knot. Um, I'm going to have to renounce that. <laughs> uh, anyhow, so, um, so this is our beloved object. This is the, the, your favorite lamp of all time, and, uh, or your favorite person, or your strawberry sundae, or whatever it is that you're into. You're chocolate cappuccino right and this is this is this is desire that um, grabs it and uh, desire lust um, greed uh, attachment really it's really attachment and so with the, this teaching of renunciation isn't saying get rid of the whole lot because that would be saying get rid of the whole world because it's problematic there's nothing wrong with the world it's a beautiful thing but we're looking at this, the rope that binds the thing that we're interested in. That's what we're releasing. Right? So the object, the person, the experience can be as it is without the grip of our clinging attached mind. You see the difference? So they're very, they're very different. Usually we think, oh no, I have to reject all that stuff because you know, it causes me to get attached. No, you just have to look at your attachment. That's the issue. So, um, there was this uh, great Indian teacher once put it, he said, it's not the outer objects that bind us, but our inner attachments to them. So, one way of looking at renunciation around around material things is, uh, this is from Suzuki Roshi, he said, it's not giving up the things of the world, but accepting they go away. Not accepting... Not, not giving up the things of the world, but accepting they go away, which means living lightly, just like Byron Katie was living lightly <coughs> with her stuff. Right? They go, stuff goes away, it gets stolen, we lose it, we die, it perishes, the car gets totaled, right? to, to hold it lightly. Yeah. Easier said than done. So noticing next Sunday morning when you're sitting in your dining room, kitchen, and you're um, looking through the pile of catalogs, um, looking for something to desire, <laughs> looking for something to want, looking for something to get attached to. Notice when you shift from being quite happily just sipping your morning tea, reading the paper, to suddenly feeling like, I've got to have that uh, golf club warmer uh, <laughs> whatever, you know, the electric, you know, I don't know, sunglass demister or something. Um, you can tell I've been flying too much in reading those you know, online <laughs> catalogs of things that you never ever n- thought you wanted or needed, but you can buy, you know. So, um, 
So just a couple of things that support um, renunciation. One is uh, to uh, is the is the the state or the practice of gratitude. Of of realizing what we have and appreciating what we have, it's a very powerful antidote to the mind that's wanting and needing and and holding on. Oh, I don't need to hold on because I have so much. I'm given to so much. The practice of generosity is also it's an antidote to that holding on mind. It's a releasing. It's a giving away. So I love the story of a of this research where they gave two groups twenty bucks. Half the group. And one group was was told to go and spend it on whatever they wanted. The other group was told to give it away. Came back, did some tests. Guess which group felt happier? The group that gave it away. Right? It supports a certain lightness and wellness of being. The practice of generosity. The practice of simplicity. Also another beautiful support for renunciation. I have a friend in New York. Colin Bevan, who uh, created the video No Impact Man. He lives in New York with his wife and kids and has zero waste because he lives very simply. It's a beautiful metaphor for us. So um, lastly, and uh, unfortunately I don't have so much time to go into it, and really it's probably the most important place for us to practice renunciation is, and I really I refer to it in different ways, is around the sense of uh, self, the sense of ego identification, believing the stories about who we take ourselves to be, who we are. So, and as we know, the ego likes to um, hold onto and grab and use experiences to prop itself up for a certain sense of inflation and grandiosity, or security, well-being which is somewhat diluted because it's not understanding the source of happiness. It's not, it's not about getting enlightenment, it's about unburdening and realizing one's freedom. So this cartoon that I love, I'm not sure if I've read this on Monday nights yet, um, there's some monks sitting around meditating and then one monk's going, yeah, oh yeah, first to reach enlightenment, right here people, woo, baby, eat my dust, ladies. <laughs> and the other monks are like, What's up with that guy? <laughs> that is the um, <laughs> that is the ego mind grabbing onto our spiritual experiences, making ourselves super special and super super wonderful. And it's the antithesis. You know, we may have a profound experience, and then our egoic mind will, like Gollum, you know, precious, come here, precious. Yes, you're mine, you're mine. Right? We do that, and then we sort, and then we immediately contract around what was probably a very opening, spacious experience. So, noticing the stories and the ownership of stories and ideas about yourself that actually are always constricting, because any story about yourself is a limitation of who you can, who you are, because who you are cannot be put into words and name and form. You're much vaster and beyond that, nameless and formless. So I will leave you with a question, which is, um, uh, how to phrase this 
to reflect on some area or some aspect of your experience, mental, physical, emotional, relational, worldly experience that would be served by you bringing more understanding to it that would allow you to let go. So, and and I, I frame it in that way very deliberately not what would be good for you to let go, although if you can, then great. And if you, if you could, you probably would have already, so it's a sort of pointless question. But what in your life is causing some stress, distress, suffering, angst, fear, anxiety, that would, that would serve you to have a, some more patient understanding with it, that the understanding would allow some softening and releasing of that pattern, that tendency? that habit, that thought, that view, yeah? So, so reflect on that as you carpool home, as you drive home, as you go through your week. Like, what, what, where in my life am I holding on that really doesn't serve my well-being or the happiness of others? Yeah? And just choose one. <laughs> you might come up with 23, yeah. and that's fine. But like, just you know, make it practical and simple and, and doable. What's what's what can I do this week that would, you know, wh- where where do I see myself really just, you know, maybe it's around time scarcity, right? We have so much time scarcity. Oh, not enough time. Too much to do. Not enough time. So many emails, and meetings, and what if I could just bring a little spaciousness around that scarcity, so there's some relaxation of the body and mind, so I'm still able to do all the things I need to do, but without the fear. Etc. 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 Okay. Well, it was wonderful to be here with you. Thank you for your kind attention, and um, I will be here next week in the next three weeks. Um, so have a wonderful week, and may we all be free and practice renunciation with effortless grace. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.